The scripture reading for today is from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, you foolish person, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that matter in which you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, you foolish person who passes judgment on those who practice such things, and yet does them as well, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-serving and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of mankind who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Well, good morning. <clears throat> I would say who I am, but you already heard, right? So I'm Jim. of the two of us, I'm Jim. So if you didn't know that, there you go. Um, okay. Well, we're in our third week studying the book of Romans. We got a long way to go, um, but I'm excited about it. Um, we're going through Romans this year to help us understand how to live out being a member of the church, not just the church body of Hope Chapel, but the universal church. Helping us to understand all that that entails. How to live in relationship with God. How to live in relationship with one another. How to live in relationship with the wider community and our culture. And here's the high-level outline of Romans. Perfect, Jeremy, thank you. Uh, this looks familiar because Harrison showed it two weeks ago. All right, so um, I thought it'd be a good place to kind of reground us where we're starting. We're, we're just in the beginning talking about justification and we'll move our way on through these other topics as we go. Now, the fundamental message of Romans, Harrison also told us, is good news, the gospel. And the good news is a person, Jesus, and that person's victory over sin and death. Now, last week, we had to hear that to fully understand the gospel, we need to truly understand ourselves and our sinful wretched, completely corrupt condition before we came to Jesus. And that was a tough sermon, both to preach and to hear, but it was full of truth and compassion. But Harrison also added that we are going to spend a few chapters doing the same thing. I'm excited. All right. Because we got to really understand the depth of our sin and the nature of judgment. So we've got several weeks to go here in this Going downward, I guess we should think we've got to go down before we can go up, uh, but this is only week two, so sorry about that. 
Now, in the first week, Harrison Oswald told us that the church in Rome was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, some of those Jews were born Jewish, but some of them were proselytes or Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, and then they had converted to Jesus. And there were also Gentiles who were never converted to Judaism before they came to Jesus. Now, why do I need to bring this up? Because this issue of Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, will be important to help us understand our text today, and it's going to keep coming up over and over again as we go through the book of Romans. The Jews thought they were God's chosen people, and they were, and some of them were skeptical that the gospel could actually extend to the Gentiles. They had the law from God. They supposedly knew right from wrong, so some of them thought they had this sort of moral superiority over the Gentiles. And so we're going to see those two themes come come up today and also in future sermons. Now, next slide. I've titled the sermon poorly. I titled it Proper Judgment. Uh, That's not a great title, I'm going to tell you, because it's not adequate. It should have been titled Starting to Understand Judgment. Because I do not have time today to say everything there is about judgment. One of the problems of preaching is you've got to figure out where to quit talking as well as what to say. Um, And so um, it'd be better if I just had called it starting to understand, because that's what I want us to do today is start to understand some aspects of judgment. And today, what are we going to see? We're going to see that we will all face judgment and we should judge others carefully, if at all. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Romans, uh, as Kyle said earlier, and uh, thank you that we have the opportunity to study it and to uh, understand it and thereby grow. And so we pray today that um, uh, as we consider your word, that we would grow more and more to be the people you want us to be, to serve in your kingdom uh, in this culture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now again, last week, if you were here, that last half of Romans 1, we saw the devastating sin that is compounded in people who reject God. Paul's emphasis was on the Greeks or the Gentiles. And we saw that they were not only guilty of sexual sin, they were, Romans 1, 29 through 31, filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Most importantly, Paul says that God gave them up to a depraved mind because they had exchanged the truth of God as far as they could understand it in general revelation for a lie. And so these actions and characteristics that that Paul describes in Romans 1 are both the sins and the judgment for the sins of the Gentiles. Now, starting in chapter 2 and continuing beyond chapter 2, Paul now turns his attention to the Jewish people there at the church. And if you were sitting in that Roman church gathering, and you were either a Hebrew believer, now following Jesus, or a Hebrew non-believer, perhaps becoming interested in discovering more about this person, Jesus, and you were hearing Paul's letter read, you'd be feeling really good about yourself. You'd be saying, preach on, brother Paul, this is great. That's exactly like the Gentiles are. You're right. Because you would be of Jewish heritage 
You had the law. You were part of God's chosen people since the day of Abraham. Listen to how sorry those Gentiles are. Suddenly, Paul turns the tables, doesn't he? And he writes, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This would have been an absolute shock to the Jewish listener. Whether they were a believer or not, they would have just been blown away. It reminds me of the book of Amos and and other prophetic books where the the prophets proclaim doom and punishment to the countries that surround and afflict Judah and Israel. And then suddenly the prophet turns and says, you are just as guilty of doing the same thing and God is not going to revoke the punishment against you. It would have been shocking. Moreover, he states that the readers of this letter practice the same things. Can that really be true? The people with the law and the promise, can it really be true that they did such things? Sure it can. And Paul should know. He describes himself in Philippians as a Hebrew of Hebrews and blameless according to the law. But in 1 Timothy 1, he says he's the chief of sinners. Paul knows humans and he knows the human heart. The Jews are doing the same thing that the Gentiles are doing and they're passing judgment on the Gentiles for doing those things. Paul goes on to state that all can agree that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice things and he asks them, Do you suppose when you do the same things yourself that you'll escape the judgment of God, princess, because of your heritage and because you have the law? Of course, the answer is no. They won't. Now, we're going to come back to the glimmer of hope that's there in verse 4 at the end. But in the following verses, 5 and onward, Paul presses the point home. He first tells the Romans, why is it that they judge others for the same sins they're doing? Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, in the original Greek, the word stubbornness here is sclerotes, something hard to touch. Um, I'm a physician, retired. Um, I'm a physician. And we talk about atherosclerotic heart disease. It's the same word, sclerosis. Okay, it's hard. You know, it's got all that calcification in it. Blockages in the arteries to the heart or atherosclerotic heart and vascular disease um, is the leading cause of death in the United States. So apparently sclerosis of the heart kills people physically. And Paul is saying sclerosis of the heart kills people physically spiritually. Because a person with a hardened, sclerotic, unrepentant heart stores up wrath for themselves. Now, this is such an interesting way for Paul to say it. Um, It's the same word when, when we're told to store up our treasures in heaven. So, we're supposed to store up good things? Ah, these people are storing up bad things. They're storing up God's wrath and indignation. 
The second thing about this, and before I say it, I want to open a church history window, as we're calling it, when we have an opportunity to do this, because I want to quote a person named John Chrysostom, and I want you to understand who he was. John Chrysostom was one of the church fathers. All right, so the church fathers were these influential theologians, Christian writers who lived during the centuries following the apostles. And those writings are regarded as being formative for the doctrine of the church. The earliest church fathers up there you'll see listed were the apostolic church fathers. They, some of them actually knew the apostles. And one of them, Clement of Rome, is actually mentioned in the book of Philippians. Later church fathers are grouped according to whether they lived before or after the Council of Nicaea in 325. The group before the Council of Nicaea is known as the anti-Nicene church fathers. Now, you've got to be a little careful about that one. For years, I read that as anti-Nicene church fathers, okay? That they're not against the Nicene Creed. They were before the Nicene Creed, right? Anti, not anti, okay? So Tertullian and Origen and others were examples of them. And then the group afterwards were called the Nicene or the post-Nicene church fathers. John Chrysostom lived after the Council of Nicaea. As you can see, I've written it there. And he was um, in this latter group. He held various church titles. At one point, he was the Bishop of Constantinople. You might find it interesting, given our present cultural moment, that he often fought against other church leaders and political leaders for their abuse of authority. The human heart just doesn't change, does it? Just doesn't change. John was exiled by church sometimes or government leaders in his life several times. And he died as a result of his final trip into exile. He was a prolific preacher and writer and probably second only to Augustine in his impact on the reformers in the 16th and 17th century. All right, so back to our text. What did John Chrysostom have to say about this verse, about storing up wrath? He says, Paul says you're storing up wrath for yourself. He doesn't say God is storing it up for you. And his point is that the person who judges others for the things that they do themselves is the originator, the creator, if you will, of the wrath that will come their way at the day of judgment. They cannot blame God for it. They only have themselves to blame. So far from being in the clear due to their heritage as the chosen people and their knowledge of the law, Paul says that the Jew who does the same thing will not escape judgment. They will be judged both for their sins and the judgment they delivered on the Gentiles as well. Now, after explaining their stubborn heart as the reason for God's wrath in verse 6, he then quotes Jesus, who in Matthew 16 quotes Psalm 62 and Proverbs 24 and says, God will render to each person according to his deed. Now, the following four verses amplify this action of God. The first of the four, seven, and the last of the four, ten, promise good things, glory, honor, immortality, eternal life, and peace to those who persevere in doing good. And the middle two, verse eight and nine, promise wrath, indignation, tribulation, and distress to those who are selfishly ambitious, evil, and do not obey the truth. And then the last two verses of those four, verses 9 and 10, state that this will occur for the Jew first and then for the Gentile because, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. 
So, in chapter 1, Paul describes the state of the Gentiles, those who should know of God through general revelation, but who exchanged their knowledge of God, the Creator, for created things, and they're presently suffering some of the judgment of God for doing so. But in the first part of chapter 2, Paul begins to dismantle Jewish smugness, that their heritage and their knowledge of the law will sometimes save them, will somehow save them, excuse me, by first pointing out that they are guilty of doing the same things compounded by their unjust judgments of the Gentiles. For this, they will deserve God's judgment as well. Now, Paul's going to have a lot more to say about this in the rest of this chapter and the next chapter as we go deeper into the depths of sin. But where does this leave us now? Where does this leave us today? What can we start to learn about judgment now? First, we will all face judgment someday and our works will be judged. You can go ahead and put the slide back up there, Jeremy. Thanks. The consistent biblical position from the Old Testament to Jesus to Paul to Revelation is exactly what verse 6 says. God will render to each person according to their deeds. Now, those who do not follow Jesus will receive, and indeed Paul says they're already receiving, God's wrath, indignation, tribulation, and distress for their unrighteous deeds, as horrible as that sounds. But what about for us who have faith in and follow Jesus? Is it true that God will render to us according to our deeds? In fact, the answer might surprise you. The answer is yes. We will all face judgment of our works someday, I think this is something that we in the evangelical and reformed church are sometimes a little afraid to say out loud for fear it may be misinterpreted, but we will all face judgment of our works someday. Now, we do often talk about the relationship of faith and works. The most common thing we state is that we're saved by faith, not by works. And we often quickly point out that although works do not save us, a faith without works, as James says, is dead and useless. We usually state that is in the following way. We say we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. There have to be works as well. But we don't often talk about our works being judged. So what can we learn from Scripture about this? All right, so I want to start at the basics here to be sure we're on the same page. <clears throat> Excuse me. We who follow Jesus are forgiven for our sins on the basis of our faith in Jesus. And that faith is given to us by grace from God. We would not somehow conjured up our faith on our own. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. What do dead people do? Nothing. Okay? They could do nothing to save themselves. We will bring nothing of value that will serve to cause God to forgive us for our sinful works. Even the faith that ultimately saves us is a gift from God. Jesus suffered all of the punishment that we deserve for our sins, all of the punishment that we deserve for our sins, and it is due solely to his work that we are and will be forgiven, and we will not be punished by God's wrath and indignation. This is the heart of justification that we're talking about, how we're made right with God. As a result, we should not fear the day of judgment when it says, God will render to each person according to their deeds. When I first said that, you might have been going, oh no. But I'm telling you, you don't have to say, oh no. Now some have wondered, if all the secret words and deeds 
and sins of uh, followers of Jesus will somehow be revealed at the last day. Yes, they'd be revealed as pardoned sins, but nevertheless, and perhaps embarrassingly, revealed. And I'm going to tell you, it's actually, frankly, kind of hard to be sure about this. There are clear passages that all people, including believers, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and that every secret thing will be judged. But it's not really clear what that means for believers. Are these secret sins or bad things that are being judged? Are these secret good things that are being judged? One passage that is often quoted is 1 Corinthians 4.5. It says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord who comes will both until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts. And so people say, see, everything will be revealed. Even coming up in verse 16 in chapter 2 of Romans, it says that secret things are going to be revealed. But if we look back at this passage in 1 Corinthians 4, it actually ends with the phrase that each man's praise will come to him from God. So the context here of uh, these hidden things in the darkness and disclosing of, God, of men's hearts, the context here is not one of judgment or embarrassment. It's one of commendation and praise. Additionally, Psalms tells us that God removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. And the book of Hebrews, citing Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Michael, says God's words, I will remember their sins no more. And finally, let me just say it makes no sense for us who follow Jesus to be shamed at the judgment seat of God. Jesus paid the price for our sins and for our shame. It would be unjust of God to punish both Jesus and us. Given all that, some have concluded that there will be for followers of Jesus no exposure of secret sins and bad things at the time of judgment, since some of that could lead to shame and embarrassment. So I'm going to tell you, I'm not quite sure. But I am sure of one thing. We can sum up the believer's expectation of the time of judgment by Paul's statement in Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no punishment and there's no shame. So if we're, if, if non-believers are going to get you know, their deeds are going to get punished and, and our evil deeds are not going to be punished, but maybe revealed or not. We're not positive. What else could it mean for us that God will render to each person according to their deeds? And remarkably, remarkably, this means that good works that we have done will be judged and this judgment by God may actually lead to some type of further reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evidence, for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as throw through fire. So, it's not clear uh, what the reward or rewards will be, but there will apparently be something there if our work from this life survives the testing of fire at the judgment. Now, 
To be honest with you, I don't look forward to the possibility of being saved as through fire. I'm not quite sure exactly what that means, but I'm not excited about it, but I'll just be happy to be there whether there's any further reward or not. And as theologian Wayne Grudem points out, even though there will be degrees of heaven, sorry, degrees of reward in heaven, it appears, the joy of each person will be full and complete for eternity. You know, given all this, why don't we pause for a moment and think, what actually is a good work? What, what is a good work? When we think about good works, we usually think about big things. Missionary activities, great deeds that cost a lot of time, effort, or money. Superhuman efforts, if you will. That's probably what you first think of when you think about a work that God might judge as good. That is not what Jesus says a good work is. Jesus said it was a good work to give a cold glass of water to someone in need. Jesus said it was a good work to clothe those who are naked, to visit those in prison, and to give food and drink to those who need it. Jesus said it was best to give in secret and not let others know what you have done. The reformers cited two things that had to be true for a good work to be good. And neither of these have to do with the size or scope of the action. The first is it had to be according to God's law. Something that breaks the law is never good. But second, it had to be for God's glory. A good thing we do, whether for God or for others, that we do to feel good about ourselves or to try to win God's approval or even try to win other people's approval is, thank you for doing it, not a good work. Glad you did it. Glad I did it. Makes the world better. It's not a good work. Which, of course, makes me wonder when I consider my usual motivations for doing what I do, whether I'm going to have any good works at all. But that's okay. God undoubtedly will be judging the big things we did, but he will be judging and rewarding the little things we did for his glory in our everyday lives. Our everyday lives can be filled with good works, and they should be. So, we will all face judgment. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Second, today we can learn that we should judge others carefully, if at all. Now, I don't know about you, but Paul's warning to the Jews to not judge the Gentiles because in judging them, they condemn themselves because they practice the same things. I don't know if it's troubling to you, but it's really troubling to me. When I, see, when I read those traits and those actions from chapter 1, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. I see myself in some of that. I'm not a literal murderer, and I don't think I'm full of evil. But Jesus compared anger with a brother to murder, and I am guilty of that. And I do see in myself envy, deceit, occasionally gossip, certainly at times some arrogance, and I can be unloving and unmerciful. And I've done all those things as a believer and as a follower of Jesus. I've probably done them in the last week. 
And I've judged others who do those things both within and outside the church who do those same things that I have done. I suspect I'm not the only one in this room who has done that. Why do we do this? Jesus told us not to judge others lest we be judged by the same standards by which we judge. That is so clear. Why do we do it? Well, I can think of at least two reasons why we judge others for things that we do ourselves. And you can probably think of more. One is that we're spiritually blind to our own sins sometimes. We just don't recognize the sin in ourselves. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives is progressively open our eyes to our sin. This is part of what we call sanctification. And I'll tell you that if you follow Jesus as long as I have, it's really humbling when the Word of God and the Holy Spirit suddenly make you realize that some action or activity that you've been doing for years is sinful. Or perhaps it is a wrong and sin that you have not been doing some action or activity for years. That's really humbling. On the other hand, I do have to say I'm thankful that this is a progressive action of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit exposed to us the full depth and breadth of our sin the day we came believers here, <laughs> it would be overwhelming. But the fact remains that we should be careful how we judge others because we often don't recognize our own sin. A second reason that we tend to judge others is to feel good about ourselves. And there's no better way to feel good about yourself than to compare yourself to others. Now, I'll also admit there's no better way to feel bad about yourself than to compare yourself with others. I got that, okay? But on the other hand, you can always find somebody with more sin than you, can't you? I'm not as bad as that person or this person. But that is best only a temporary balm for your conscience because them being more wrong than you does not make you more right with God. And you'll finally recognize that and your sorrow will be compounded because not only do you have the same sin, now you have the sin of wrongful judging. One commentator said it succinctly, it is futile to use the vices of others, even their worst, as a screen for our own faults, even the slightest. Now, does this mean we should never judge what someone else is doing and how they're living? Well, I think it could be debatable as to whether we should judge those outside the church about this. I'm not sure what purpose that actually serves. Why would we expect non-believers to act like believers? Why are we surprised at the depravity of someone in whom the Holy Spirit does not dwell? So why should we judge and condemn them? Paul's clear. They condemn themselves by their actions and they suffer for it. But within the church... While it is true that Jesus said we're not to judge others, he also said in Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. One of the aspects of our lives together as followers of Jesus is that we should be helping one another become more like Jesus. And that means sometimes we have to help one another see the sins to which we are blind ourselves. That sounds a whole lot like judging, doesn't it? And it does require some judgment on our part. And when it's done wrongfully and with condemnation, it does become judging. It is wrong. It is destructive to individuals and to the church community. But when it's done with discernment, patience, mercy, 
love, and most of all, when it's done with humility, it can be a blessing. This is why I said we should judge carefully, if at all. Today we've started to learn about judgment. We've seen that we will all face judgment from God, and that is something that followers of Jesus need not fear, and you may have never thought about the judgment of good works. And we have seen that we should judge others carefully, if at all, although there may be times within the church body that we have to be discerning. As I close today, I want to briefly return to verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to recognize the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. You're guilty before God. But he is patient and kind as giving you time to come to repentance. Today would be a great day to come to Jesus in faith and begin a life of following him. If you need to know more, ask me, ask Harrison, ask one of the people that will be in the foyer during communion. Any of us would love to talk to you about following Jesus. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I also want us to recognize the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. Yes, we are forgiven, but let us not abuse that forgiveness by doing the things that Paul describes the Gentiles doing and compound it by judging and condemning those who do. May his kindness and tolerance and patience lead us to further repentance into lives worthy of the children of God. Amen.